0: Last week, Rich and I started a debate, not not as in taking opposite sides of an issue, but in just like you know, a debate where a question gets asked and two people or more, or 14 or 15, how many ever of this, give their answer to the question that they think. And the question that we answered last week was asked of us by Chatham Ball. He asked, Why doesn't Cana talk about the conviction of sin? And I think we saw last week that that's what Kana always talks about is the conviction of sin, but if you want the details on what Rich and I had to say last week, you're going to have to go to the podcast if you missed it, but it's there for your convenience. Today, we're going to explore the next question that arises in this very interesting subject. What is the purpose of the conviction of sin? What is the purpose? Last week, Rich went first, took all the time, so this week I'm going first, and I'm going to take all the time this week. I need a volunteer for a little illustration. Alice, excellent. Wow, that was a fast hand you put up there. Alice, great job. Okay, so... I want you to hoop. Nope, not up. So this is a hoop. I have a bunch of different size hoops. They represent sins that maybe we struggle with. So Alice, we're going to call this one murder. Can you get through this one, please? You know, just can you? Yeah. Excellent. Good. So Alice is sinless when it comes to murder. That's fantastic, Alice. I feel a little more comfortable with you in my life now. <laughs> now let's call this hoop, Alice. We'll call this adultery. Can you get through this one? Phenomenal. Sinless when it comes to adultery. Good, Alice. I like that. <laughs> lying. Yeah, what, what are we going to do with that? Any part? Okay, but still, wait. You got an arm. Not bad at all. An arm, okay. So, not sinless when it comes to lying, but you're doing pretty good trying to get through that. Stealing? No. Any chance? No. Maybe a finger? Good. Got it. And then, of course, you know where we're going. Here's the soup, right? Nothing. Good. Thank you, Alice. Well done. (laughs) God's law is ultimately about perfection. And sooner or later, every single one of us is going to come up to a hoop that we can't jump through. So, before we answer the question, what's the purpose of conviction of sin, we need to define, what is the Christian story? Because there's a lot of ideas of what the Christian story is. Is the Christian story about jumping through hoops? Is that really the Christian story? Is it about sinning versus... Is it about sinning versus non-sinning? Is it about behavior modification? Is that the Christian story? Or is the Christian story about life versus death and transformation? In John's Gospel we read... Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. And when John wrote his first letter, he said, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. These are just two of countless verses throughout the Bible which revealed clearly that Christianity is about life out of death and not about behavior modification. Christianity is life out of death, not about behavior modification. The radicalness of Jesus' message was exactly this. When he showed up, God in the person said, people, your religions are about sin versus not sinning. God is about life out of death. And by the way, that radicalness of message got him killed. Jesus was clear, I think, that sin, let's give it a capital S, is the disease, and sin, small s, are the symptoms, the hoops that we all wrestle with. Okay, we have the disease of sin, then we have the small s sins. And though we may all have different sins symptoms of the disease, and we do. What I wrestle with might not be what you wrestle with, and what you wrestle with might not be what I wrestle with. But we all have the same disease. And Paul, St. Paul, was very clear with that when he wrote, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no exception to this rule. And it is the disease, not the symptoms, that bring death. The disease, not the symptoms that bring death. Okay? So, it is, it, it is the disease, not the symptoms, that need dealing with. Because the symptoms simply come out of that death. Okay? Now, before we answer the question, two more thought processes here on the Christian story, so then we can get to that. Scripture is also clear that only by grace are we saved from this disease. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, not of jumping through hoops, despite what religion wants us to think. It's not about jumping through hoops, it is a gift of God. So, we come out of death into life by His grace, out of death into life by His grace, and then living in life the symptoms start to go away, and we bring forth fruits of the Spirit. A great little illustration to think of, which I want to thank Robert Hicks for this. He gave me this after last week's service. When we are planted in life, we bear fruits. When we are planted in death, we bear sins. I like that. This is the Christian narrative. Life, not death. Transformation, not behavior modification. Okay? And, you know, one of the things... In one of our songs this morning we sang for praise. The line was, And this is all I am unless you make me more. And in Dave's song, it's this beautiful song that he just sang, is about this thing. One of the things that we would do well to remember as Christians is only God knows everyone's full story. Only God. And when we look at the outward behavior of people, and we want to get on our high horse, and start helping them somewhere, be careful. We don't know their story. And maybe, just like in real life, I I can plant... Dave could break apart one of his perennials and give it to me, and I could plant it in my yard, and it might grow this much, but in Dave's yard it grows this much, and in someone else's yard it grows. We're all on the journey, and it would be really good to be a little more patient with each other. We don't know why people struggle to get through different hoops. That's important, and number two, hoops aren't the issue, as I think we're going to see. See, remember, we can modify our behavior and still have the death. We can take care of symptoms, doctors, back me up on this, we have doctors, and still have the disease. Jesus was very clear about this. This is why, have you ever read the Gospels and wondered why Jesus was always worrying about legalism? Because of this. He said to the people that thought they were good, that were religiously excellent and leaders, he said, wow, look at them. They're so clean on the outside. But on the inside, death. This is why legalism is so dangerous. We can be clean on the outside and be filled with death on the inside. And notice what Jesus said. He said, but hey, deal with the inside and your outside will become clean. The other illustration I've often used at Cana, when the doctor prescribes you antibiotics for ten days and your symptoms go away in three, don't stop taking the antibiotics. You still have the infection. You've got to deal with the disease. Okay? And only grace can deal with the disease. Only grace. It's the Christian narrative. So then, one more thing, and then we're going to answer the questions. We also know, for Christians, for those in Christ, there is no longer any condemnation. Paul said it clearly, there's no condemnation, and Jesus said, you have passed out of death into life. In 524, you do not come into judgment. So then, symptoms with Christians are not the issue when it comes to conviction of sin. And for those outside of Christ, non-Christians if you will, the issue is lack of faith. Listen to what Jesus said in John 3. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So symptoms, the hoops are not the issue when it comes to non-Christians either, when it comes to conviction of sin. So then, let's answer the question. What is the purpose of the conviction of sin? The purpose of the Holy Spirit's conviction of sin is to shine light on the way of life. Grace. Which is why, interestingly, the writer of the Hebrews calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Grace. The Holy Spirit seeks not to make us sin conscious, but to make us grace conscious. He seeks to make us life conscious. Think of it this way, in like mo- a modern a modern job right now that's really big is life coaches. Well, the Holy Spirit is a life coach, he's not a sin coach. Paul Ellis captures this perfectly, I think. When he writes, the Holy Spirit isn't your personal sins manager, but your helper, your comforter, your counselor. And in that role, he will guide you, correct you, and if necessary, rebuke or admonish you. He does none of this in reaction to your sins per se, he does it because he loves you, he cares for you. And He doesn't want you to wreck your life on some hair-brained, death-dealing decision. I love that. The purpose of the conviction of sin is to drive us back to grace. Back to the only salvation there is. God's sacrificial love of us. Think about it this way. Grace is the only power that can save us, so that is exactly what non-Christians need. The conviction of the power of grace to save. Grace is the only power that can transform us, so that is exactly what Christians, when we find ourselves living into death, need. The conviction of the power of grace to transform us. And this is exactly what our text talks about. Conviction of sin is not about bookkeeping and keeping track of what hoops we've jumped through and what hoops we still need to jump through. That's not what the conviction of sin is. And this is what our text says. Now, unfortunately, John is an incredibly difficult writer to understand without really spending time. So I think another scholar, Eugene Peterson, did a phenomenal job of helping us understand what this complicated text means. When he comes, the Holy Spirit, he'll expose the error of the godless world's view of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And by the way, that sort of encompasses most of us. The error of our view. He'll show them, us, that our refusal to believe in Jesus is our basic sin. That righteousness comes from above, not from us jumping through hoops, but from above. And that judgment takes place as the ruler of this godless world, not you and I, is judged and found guilty. The Holy Spirit wants one thing. For those in death to come to life, and for those in life to live more fully into it. That's why the purpose of conviction is to drive us to grace, and to teach us grace, and to remind us of grace. This is what St. Paul says, and I wish I had been convinced of this when I was a younger man, and was one of those Pharisees that looked phenomenal on the outside and was still filled with death now if the ministry that brought death which was engraved in letters on stone Paul is talking about the law of God God's law what kind of ministry is it? a ministry of death Saint Paul said that not me But I've talked about this a lot at Canaan, that if you don't understand that the ministry of the law is death, then you should be very, very, very careful how you use it. Because you are participating in a ministry of death, not life. Paul said it, not me. And if it's glorious, Paul said transitory though it was, because it's gone, will not the ministry of the spirit be even more glorious? The spirit of grace. The ministry of grace. Because it's the only ministry that brings life. If the ministry that brought condemnation, the law, and I know I'm all worked up, my wife's looking at me back there like, David, dial it back. (laughs) You don't understand. I have a brother who hates God because he was given the ministry of condemnation and death his whole life. I preached a condemnation ministry and a death ministry. And I have plenty of friends still today that have walked away. And only by the grace of God when I walked away, I'm standing here. If you want people to live, stop making them jump through hoops. It's not Christianity. Bring them to the only Christianity and the only salvation there is. The righteousness that the glorious ministry brings. Grace. Sorry. And the Lord is the Spirit... And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, which is dying on a cross, are being transformed into His image. We're not making ourselves into His image by jumping through hoops. We're being transformed by His power, at His speed, and in His good time, and for His purposes. And I know people argue that it can't just be this, David. It can't. Conviction of sin has to be about the hoops. Focus on the symptoms. When someone has a flu, do you need to tell them they're sick? Honest. And if they don't know they're sick, like two weeks ago, my wife kept telling me, call the doctor, call the doctor, call the doctor. And and I'm so stupid, I'm not going to listen to what you say anyway. You better pray for me harder. And you better bring me to the cross more. Think about the hoops. You can't jump through them all. So, if the Christian story that we all claim to believe really is about life out of death, and the only thing that brings life is the grace of God, not our works, then why would the Holy Spirit, who wrote the story, by the way, who wrote the story, spend time trying to get us to focus on the symptoms and work to change them? And if the Spirit doesn't, why would we? If we really care about our own lives and the lives of our loved ones and the lives of people in our community, then we should spend our time doing what the Spirit is doing reminding each other of who we are in Christ. And if we're not in Christ yet, reminding us of who we can be in Christ. Because that's the Christian story. We need to bring each other back to the cross, back to grace. For as St. Paul said, for sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Amen. Richard, you're up. Sorry, I took so long. from Ah
1: yes. Thank you, David. Boy, what a one. We all have hung-up words—words that we hear, and because of the connotation, we end up getting distracted and missing the intended mm-hmm. meaning that the person, you know, was talking. For example, I find when I'm around my my mom and dad or their friends, there are certain words that they use being from an older generation that kind of get me sidetracked when they use them. In speaking some of someone from an older generation, David. <laughs> David uses a word that he pronounces idea. Now, when I hear that, I think he means, actually means the word idea. But every time he says it, I can get hung up and uh, kind of forget what he's talking about as I'm focusing on that word. Well, the same thing can happen in church. Take the word evangelical. When I was in college and in my 20s, that, the in a, a, the term evangelical Christian simply meant someone who affirmed Orthodox Christian beliefs it had no real political or fundamentalist overtones to it at all at least where I grew up in the Midwest today however I really avoid that word because of its political and social baggage and it's a hung-up word for for many of us uh, linguist Benjamin Lee Warf, Warf, excuse me he says, Language shapes the way we think and determines what we think about. Joshua Roberts brings this into the church context when he says, we have a special obligation to watch the words we use to describe God, especially if we portray Him doing something that is fundamentally at odds with His character. That's why I've been wrestling with this word conviction since last Sunday, and I feel like we should qualify some of the discussion we have had over the over the past two weeks as we're talking about it. In fact, I'm wondering if this familiar Princess Bride quote is appropriate when we speak of the word conviction. You keep using that word, I don't think it means what you think it means. So, if you miss that, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. And let me explain what I what I'm getting at with this. To be clear, the Holy Spirit does convict the world in general of sin. We see that from John 16, 8, the passage we read, uh, looked at earlier. Augustus, uh, top lady, expresses this well when he said, I had to use that quote just for the name, of it, for the name of uh, Did the Holy Spirit ever convict you of sin? Do you see yourself liable to the curse of the law for the innate depravity of your nature and the transgressions on your life? Do you come to Christ with the realization that unless you are clothed with the merits of him, You are ruined and undone. If so, lift up your head. Redemption is yours. You are in a state of grace. You are translated from death to life. You are an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. Now, the language he uses here sounds a bit archaic. Curse of the law, innate depravity, transgressions, words we don't really use too much these days. But in spite of this, I think he expresses well this idea of conviction of sin and condemnation apart from the grace of Christ. However, if we're in Christ Jesus, I'm just wondering if it's, always, if it's not helpful to continue to use these, these exact same words. I know the actual intent of the word conviction is this idea of the Holy Spirit pointing out sin in the life of us. And that's in fact how, exactly how I used that word just last week and how I think of it you know, in, my, in my personal life. However, after diving into this issue more and and reading more about it over this past week in preparation for this morning, what I really began to struggle with is whether that word conviction is perhaps a poor word choice when talking about it in 2016. See, on the one hand, to convict. The dictionary meaning of convict is to declare someone to be guilty of a criminal offense by the verdict of a jury or the decision of a judge in a court of law. However, on the other hand, Romans 8.1, it assures us there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See the problem here? If we see the word conviction in that light, then the message can be confusing to a believer, and it can become a word that people can get hung up over. Joshua Roberts contends, the Bible certainly uses a courtroom analogy when it talks about Christians, for, but for believers, Satan is the prosecutor, God is the judge, Jesus is our defense, defense attorney, and we're declared innocent of all charges. However, the word "convict" or "conviction" is never once used to describe the day-to-day interactions of the Holy Spirit and believers. Hebrews twelve four through eleven gives us perhaps the most comprehensive description of the Holy Spirit's role. let me read through this. And this is the uh, message version, just because I think it it helps get at kind of the the root of of some of this better. In this all-out match against sin, don't feel sorry for yourselves. Or have you forgotten how good parents treat children, and that God regards you as his children? My dear child, don't shrug off God's discipline, but don't be crushed by it either. It's the child he loves that he disciplines. The child he embraces, he also corrects. God is educating you. That's why you must never drop out. He's treating you as dear children. This trouble you're in isn't punishment, it's training, the normal experience of children. He continues, he says, only irresponsible parents leave children to fend for themselves. Would you prefer an irresponsible God? We respect our own parents for training and not spoiling us. So why not embrace God's training so we can truly live? While we were children, our parents did what seemed best to them, but God is doing what is best for us, training us to live God's holy best. So let's unpack that passage for a minute and look at at how God deals with us. Some of these verbs I pulled out. Like a good parent treats a child, disciplines, corrects or chastises, educates, doesn't punish or spoil, but trains, does what is best for us, does this as a normal, commonplace experience. Will he point out our sin in our lives as part of this? Yes. Will he rebuke us? Yeah, he might do that. But notice the difference. That's quite a different picture from condemnation and a judge declaring a criminal guilty. Joshua Roberts concludes, The fact that we use a term that has little to do with the condemnation of the world when we describe the Spirit's work in our lives probably is a reflection of how we see God, as being more so our judge and less so our Father. If we see God as condemning us all the time, chances are we will see Him as ruler and judge in heaven just waiting to slap us around the moment we screw up. But if we see His work as doing what any good parent would do, discipline, correcting, and training, then we are going to see God much more as our loving Father. That's why when we see the work of the Holy Spirit training and correcting, as training and correcting, instead of condemning and punishing us, then it helps us to understand the difference between godly sorrow and guilt. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world, or guilt, produces death. When the Apostle Paul talks about godly sorrow here, he is speaking of the grieving that we have in our heart when we sin. But that's squarely contrasted with guilt. So godly sorrow is momentary and passes, and there's a gracious gentleness associated with it. In contrast... Guilt lasts and lasts and grows like a cancer inside of us, rubbing our nose in what we did over and over and over again. So godly sorrow is from the Holy Spirit, but guilt is always from Satan. So given all this, when it comes to the question that we've been talking about today, what is the purpose of conviction of sin? We need to distinguish between the purpose of conviction and the purpose of discipline. So if you look at this, comparing the two, conviction is a wake-up call, so to speak, that the Holy Spirit does to non-believers, to the world in general. And it points to the solution to this conviction, to the gospel of grace. In contrast, or on the other hand, discipline, correcting, and training is as a loving father does to his children. And with the purpose of sanctification, well, that's sanctification is really just a, a fancy theological word that kind of <clears throat> when you wish, when you uh, kind of uh, you know it, it basically just means we need to become more and more like Christ in our lives. And C.S. Lewis puts it like this: He says, "Put out of your head the idea that there are only fancy ways of saying that Christians are to read what Christ said." and try to carry it out, as a man may read what Plato or Marx said, and try to carry it out. They mean something much more than that. They mean that a real person, Christ, here right now, in that very room where you are saying your prayers, is doing things to you, killing the old natural self in you, and replacing it with the kind of self he has. At first, only for moments, then for a longer period. Finally, if all goes well, turning you permanently into a different sort of thing, into a new little Christ, a being which in its own small way has the same kind of life as God, which shares in his power, joy, knowledge, and eternity. In other words, we have a spiritual transfusion. Our sin nature is slowly replaced cell by cell into Christ's nature. And once we see the purpose of the Holy Spirit working in our lives in this light, then it makes sense why his correction is not a harsh thing, but it's a necessary thing as part of this process. And maybe this is a weak analogy, but I kind of think of it like scrubbing a pan. Oftentimes when you clean a pan, you you can just rinse water, and it's going to remove a lot of the food residue. And then maybe you have to gently scrub with a sponge to get rid of much of the rest. However, there are some occasions where neither of these will do, and you have to get out the steel wool pad to scrub hard to clean on the baked-on food or the, the stains. And in the same way, for a lot of the sin in our lives, the Holy Spirit can rinse with water or gently scrub, and we can be transformed with really out that, all that much bother. But there's some parts in the, in of our lives we're resistant, we're reluctant to turn over to Him, and so He's going to have to scrub hard to bring about that change. And that's part of that lifelong process of being transformed. This process of becoming like Christ, as David said earlier, is not focused primarily on behavior modification. Like he said, that's just superficial stuff in the end. Instead, the process of becoming like Christ is all about heart transformation. Changes deep inside of us that will alter the way we think, the way we view ourselves, and ultimately the way we behave. In other words, do you get the irony here? When you truly have a transformed heart, then behavior modification gets thrown in for free. Hmm. That's the point I think when, that some people can miss when they hear the term that we throw around here quite a bit, love God and love others. And on the surface, maybe that sounds like a superficial kind of feel-good slogan, and, uh, but the reality is it's precisely the opposite. I mean, think about this logically through with me. So if we love God and love others around us, okay, so the word love. In this context, it means agape, which is the highest form of love. It's characterized by sacrifice, faithfulness, commitment, and the act of the will. So if we love God and love others around us sacrificially, faithfully, and with a deep commitment, think of the implications First of all, we can only do that by living a sanctified, transformed life. That's the starting point, deep inside of us, to be able to do that, to love God and love others. And there's nothing superficial about that. And second, speaking of behavior modification, our behavior is going to be completely modified based upon that sacrificial love commitment. When I see the real needs of people around me, I'm going to think through what my priorities are. I'm going to restructure my own plans for them when I am loving others. It's going to impact how I treat others around home. Do I serve my family without expecting anything in return? Or is this kind of ongoing give and take that I'll do this so long as somebody else does this other thing? It's going to impact how I treat my wife around other people. Do I show respect and reverence for her? Or do I make sarcastic comments and subtly put her down in front of others? It's those little things, every part of our life, that impacts, you know, it's this inner transformation which leads to that outer behavior and how we, how we treat others, how we love others. Talking about behavior sins, let's go down them. Well, Why abuse drugs or alcohol when I know it can hurt or impact others around me? Or, if I'm single, will I sin sexually when I know that the scars that the other person will likely have to live with after the fact? Now, I could go down a list, you know, could go on and on, but you get to the point. Our inner transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit will show up on the outside, inevitably. The problem is that we can, like children do to their parents, tune out or rebel against our Heavenly Father as His children. And that's why Paul admonishes us, "Do not quench the Holy Spirit, or do not and also do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We quench the Holy Spirit when we ignore his training, his correction. We grieve the Holy Spirit when our lives, our hearts and our behavior are inconsistent with Christ. Oswald Chambers brings us back to earth when he says, Am I fully prepared to allow God to grip me by his power and do a work in me that is truly worthy of himself? Sanctification is not my idea of what I want God to do for me. Sanctification is God's idea of what he wants to do for me. But he has to get me into the state of mind and spirit where I will allow him to sanctify me completely, whatever the cost. And in the end, that's precisely the purpose of why we need to be, the Holy, to be open to the Holy Spirit, to guide, correct, teach, and make me aware of my sin.